Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony, and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. This concert was dedicated to the memory of a great Albany philanthropist, Carl Tuohy, who was for many years the chairman of the Albany Symphony Board. Uh, we loved Carl. He was an incredibly passionate, charming, winning, gregarious gentleman who loved the arts and loved our region. Uh, he died at the age of 95 during the summer, and uh, we owe all of the Albany's successes to his great example in a very difficult period in the Albany Symphony's history when the orchestra was just beginning to transition from a purely community orchestra to a professional one. So in his honor, uh, we wanted to start this concert uh, with a a particular piece as an homage to Carl, and I spoke to his widow, Nancy, who mentioned that among his very favorite composers was Sergei Rachmaninoff. So I selected this little string version of Rachmaninoff's exceedingly popular and very, very beautiful vocalese. Vocalese began its life as a, a wordless song for soprano and orchestra, but has been transcribed to all sorts of different uh, features, featuring solo instruments and also a version that Rachmaninoff himself made for orchestra. This is a beautiful little string orchestra version of Rachmaninoff's vocalese played in homage to our former board chairman, Mr. Carl Tui. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. The centerpiece of this evening's concert is an incredible new, and I put new in parentheses, and I'll explain to you in a moment why I do that, new piano concerto by the wonderful American composer Aaron J. Kernis, who's been a frequent visitor at the Albany Symphony and whose music we've had a great pleasure uh, in playing a number of times. And uh, since that's the centerpiece of the program, I wanted to build certain elements of the program around that piece. And so I consulted with Aaron sort of in, in a way to try to create a framework for that piece and, and almost a little bit of a portrait of Aaron and how he became the kind of composer he in fact did become. Uh, Aaron, whenever he talks about his musical influences, talks first and foremost about French music and particularly about the French Impressionists. So I knew that I wanted to put some beautiful Impressionistic music around Aaron's new piano concerto. And while Ravel is perhaps his favorite, uh, he's also a huge fan of Debussy, but I had uh, for a long time uh, been fascinated by the figure of Gabriel Fauré. Fauré was a generation older, and Fauré was one of the, the towering figures in French music in the late 19th century. He was not technically an Impressionist. He was, in in essence, almost like a pre-Impressionist. And in fact, he was Maurice Ravel's teacher at the Conservatoire and much-loved teacher. Ravel really uh, credited much of his greatness to Fauré's training and example. Uh, And Fauré, being a very open-minded gentleman at the end of the 19th century, encountered this very uh, interesting and bizarre and unusual and quite 
pathbreaking play by uh, Metalink, Peleas and Melisande, about a, a young girl who sort of appears one day in the forest and is discovered by the king. The king marries her, but she, in fact, falls in love with his brother. And as you can imagine, it ends uh, very sadly with, with their death. But it's a very expressionistic play, and virtually nothing happens in the play. And yet it was quite captivating in the language and the poetry to any number of French artists of the time. As you probably know, uh, Claude Debussy's greatest masterpiece, arguably, is his own operatic treatment of the music to Pelleas et Melisande, the play by Metterlinck. Uh, but before Debussy ever wrote his opera, about four or five years before, uh, Faure was asked to create music for a stage production of the play uh, that was happening in London. And he did, in fact, do that. And he, he created these beautiful little set pieces to sort of uh, frame the different scenes of the play, uh, but for a very small orchestra. And then the music was so successful and so beautiful that he then later orchestrated or reorchestrated it for a lovely orchestra uh, and created a suite of four movements from the play. They are a prelude, which sort of sets the stage for the, for the whole drama that's about to unfold. Uh, Filieuse, uh, a sort of depiction of the girl, Melisande, sort of as a carefree child, which she is at the start of the, of the play. And then a very famous movement, the one that you most uh, probably will recognize, the Sicilienne, which actually had been part of an earlier piece, but uh, Faure thought it would be very lovely in, in the play. Uh, and so the Sicilienne is sort of an Italian dance, a very lovely thing, starting with harp and flute. And then finally, the mort of uh, Melisande, the death of Melisande, a somewhat slow and dramatic uh, adagio. Faure was a, a fascinating gentleman in that Unlike his student Ravel and his uh, colleague Debussy, he was not particularly interested in instruments and orchestral colors. He was much more interested in in sort of the purity of pure music. Uh, so he most frequently wrote for piano or for voice and piano, and very seldom did he actually orchestrate. In fact, he often had his students orchestrate, and this piece, the initial version, was orchestrated by a student, and then he sort of revisited it and, and supposedly did his own orchestration. But it's fascinating that here Ravel's teacher, Ravel being perhaps the greatest orchestrator of all times, was a man who was singularly uninterested in the sounds that instruments make. And you'll hear, I think, in this beautiful set of four little little delicate pieces, just this unbelievable purity of utterance and clarity of, uh, of message. Uh, it's really unadulterated and in a in the best way, very simple music. Uh, and it's no wonder that Ravel uh, was a student of this gentleman because Ravel also, through, through his music, always attempted to make his, his utterances as clear and concise and pristine as he possibly could. So here now, four movements, the suite from Gabriel Faure's Peleas et Melisande. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion and WMHT.org. That was the suite from Gabriel Faure's incidental music to the play Peleas et Melisande. Uh, the orchestra was the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Next on the program was, in fact, the centerpiece of our program. This is this uh, wonderful new piano concerto by Aaron Kernis, which has never been heard in this version. Uh, I tell you that because this piece was originally created in 2002, uh, and it was created on commission uh, from the Singapore Symphony as a concerto for toy piano and orchestra. That's right. You heard me right. Toy piano, the kind that you buy your little preschooler to bang away on those little wonderful wooden pianos that make that kind of 
tingly, uh, bell-like sound and have very little pitch to speak of. Uh, it seems that there are now uh, a couple of very distinguished toy piano virtuosi who play mainly contemporary music because that's the, pretty much all the music that's written for toy piano. And this piece was in fact written for one of the great toy piano virtuosi, Margaret Ling Tan, who makes her living as a pianist and a toy pianist. Uh, and she plays on a very fabulous little probably, uh, I don't know, 14-inch grand toy piano, which is a, a kind of a, a bigger affair than the standard toy piano. But uh, Aaron thought the challenge of writing a toy piano concerto was quite fascinating. And so in 2002, he did that. And frankly, uh, from what I gather, although he had a great time with it, there were, as you can imagine, huge balance problems because the toy piano just doesn't make that much sound. And Aaron is a very full-bodied, French-inspired composer. He writes big, beautiful, colorful, large-scale music. So I gather when the toy piano was, uh, when the toy piano concerto was initially premiered, the toy piano was altogether subsumed by the orchestra. They tried amplifying it, and they could never get it quite right. And so for about a decade, it sat on Aaron's shelf. And then he was in conversation with a a brilliant uh, pianist from Syracuse, New York, named Andrew Russo, who's recorded a lot of his solo music and does a lot of new music. And Andrew was asking Aaron for a piano concerto. And Aaron said, well, I don't really have time right now to write a piano concerto, but I've really wanted to revisit this toy piano concerto that I wrote 10 years ago uh, and turn it into a full piano concerto without the toy piano. And that is, in fact, what he did. He reworked the, the piece a great deal uh, because the, the toy piano is so limited in scope. It only goes about an octave and a half or so. And now you've got a full, the full range of the concert grand. Uh, and he made it, uh, frankly, even more colorful and changed a lot of the, the material around and added some material and subtracted material uh, and has created what I think is a sensational piano concerto. Talking a little bit about the uh, the roots of this piece, uh, Aaron decided in this version to retitle it and not obviously call it Concerto for Piano, Piano Concerto, or Toy Piano Concerto, since there's now no toy, toy piano involved in it. Uh, he re- renamed it Three Flavors for Piano and Orchestra because, as he described it, he's a real foodie, he loves to eat, and each movement of this concerto is uh, so very different from the other two. So it was almost as if they were three different dishes that really didn't have anything to do with one another. He did not go so far as to label each movement with the name of a, a food or a dish. The three movements are ostinato, uh, which is a a musical term for a repeating figure that goes over and over again in in music. The second movement is a lullaby barcarolle. A barcarolle is a beautiful kind of piece of music that's composed to evoke or to be played on on water, on the sea or on a river. Uh, So it has this kind of wonderful lilting idea of waves in, in the barcarolle. And finally, the third movement, blue whirl. For the first movement, Aaron took as his inspiration that that really bell-like sound of the toy piano. And in fact, uh, if you could see the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall stage, uh, it was quite an impressive spectacle because virtually an entire third of the stage was taken up by the the four percussionists and an incredible group of traditional and non-traditional percussion instruments. Aaron has been fascinated by uh, gamelan, by the Indonesian orchestras. They're they're like gong orchestras or gong and xylophone orchestras, entirely made up of of metal and and percussion instruments. And um, that's a sound that many French composers, Ravel and Debussy among them, as well as many American composers of the middle of the 20th century, Henry Cowell and John Cage and people like that, were 
fascinated by. And I think that this idea of the, the clangorous nature of the toy piano conjured in Aaron's mind this idea of, of a sort of mini gamelan. So he actually, in addition to all the traditional instruments that are used, there's even a, a drum set that gets used in the last uh, movement, but there's xylophones and glockenspiels and bells and triangles and things like that. He also added a couple of sort of found instruments. There are a, they're a group of tin cans that uh, two of the players play on. And in addition, there's a series of rice bowls, actual rice bowls that you would eat rice out of, uh, that have beautiful sort of high pinging sounds and they're arranged sort of highest to lowest and they're utilized in the piece. So it's quite an incredible uh, percussion display and yet it's all used in this wonderful, delicate way to conjure a kind of Indonesian-Asian atmosphere. So that's the, the first movement. It's a very Indonesian-Asian-inspired, gamelan-inspired movement uh, in which the piano plays very uh, simple passage work and often kind of the two hands uh, doubling each other, playing the same material. The second movement gets much more uh, complicated and, and beautiful. And I mean, the first movement is also very beautiful, but it's, it's more traditional, I should probably say. Um, the second movement, Lullaby Barcarolle, is very much uh, in this French tradition of the foray, which was already on the program in the Ravel, which is still to come. Uh, at the time Aaron wrote the initial toy piano concerto, uh, his wife was pregnant with twins. And so, in a sense, this was a, a lullaby to his not-yet-born twins, who've come out and are now, I think, nine or ten years old and are wonderful, fabulous musicians in their own right. One's a violinist and one's a cellist. But at this time, they were still in utero. So actually, not only is it a lullaby, a beautiful, songful lullaby that begins after a short harp introduction with a, a very extended solo piano tune, which I think sort of harkens back to the Ravel piano concerto, if you know that beautiful slow movement. Uh, but then this barcarolle, this sort of more floating on water section, is, as Aaron admitted, it's sort of a, a, a barcarolle in utero to sort of conjure the the, the children floating uh, in his wife's womb. And then the beautiful lullaby comes back. Interestingly, now played uh, by a, the one very unusual instrument that's a non-percussion instrument. I already mentioned the, the unusual percussion, but uh, he also deploys an electric guitar in the orchestra. And so you hear this electric guitar making this very ethereal sound, playing the melody with the piano sort of elaborating uh, underneath and around the electric guitar. And then finally, the last movement, again, an entirely different flavor. This is an American jazz-infused movement, kind of 20s, 30s stride piano style, a little bit if you know the Copeland Piano Concerto, knowing a little bit maybe to, to Gershwin and, and Bernstein and others. It's a very jazzy but a very complicated movement in which the percussion becomes ever more important and, and becomes more and more like a super drum set. And actually, in addition to the drum set, all the other percussion instruments sort of make it a super drum set, and it ends with a, a fabulous rush to the finish. So here now, uh, the world premiere of this new version of Aaron uh, Kernis's Toy Piano Concerto. It's the world premiere of three flavors for piano and orchestra. Uh, it's performed by the brilliant pianist Andrew Russo with the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Opening the second half of our program, we stayed with the Aaron Kernis influence theme and uh, programmed a piece by his very favorite composer, Maurice Ravel, a little delicacy, a little French bonbon. And I think when you think back to the piano concerto on the first half, you'll certainly sense a, a, a connection between Aaron's music and Ravel's music. This is the beautiful Pavan for a dead princess. And uh, as Ravel liked to say, because I think many interpreters took it exceedingly slowly, Ravel, by all reports, liked this piece played fairly slowly, but other interpreters uh, played it much too slowly. And he 
uh, admonished them. He said, it is not a dead pavan for a princess. It's a pavan for a dead princess. A pavan is an ancient dance form. And uh, as to why Ravel titled it this, uh, it's really unclear and he wouldn't say exactly. He claimed to just like the sound of the title. It isn't for a specific princess. But it is a, a delicate, beautiful example of Ravel of Ravel's great mastery. The original piece was written when Ravel was still a student at the Conservatoire and, in fact, a student of none other than Gabriel Fauré, whose music opened the program. And then Ravel, some years later, in, I think, 1912, orchestrated the piece, uh, turned it into an orchestra piece, and it is, in fact, one of the most beautiful of all impressionist utterances. So here it is, Ravel's Pavon for a Dead Princess. It is played by the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was Maurice Ravel's Pavon for a Dead Princess, the penultimate work on our program and the final work on the program, not a French work, but a German work, but a work uh, from the early Romantic period that in essence I think has the same kind of freshness and delicacy and beauty that the two French works we've heard on the program share. It is by one of my absolute favorite composers, Robert Schumann, and it is in fact his last symphony, the symphony number three, the Rhenish. Now, those of you who know about music will say, oh, David, you're very confused. Everybody knows that Schumann wrote four symphonies, and in fact, that's true. It happens, though, that the fourth symphony is actually a, uh, a reworking of a much earlier symphony, the D minor. Uh, so this is, in fact, the last full symphony that Robert Schumann ever wrote. He wrote it in 1850. He and Clara had just moved to Dusseldorf, where he was assuming the position of Kapellmeister, of the chief of music in the city of Dusseldorf, and he was very excited about it. His final mental illness had not really begun to exhibit itself. I mean, he certainly throughout his life and career, uh, exhibited certain symptoms of, of emotional imbalance or, or perhaps depression and perhaps even schizophrenia. But uh, it was only in the next two or three years that this would become very, very serious, uh, ultimately uh, causing him to have to be uh, committed to a, an asylum uh, in which he, he passed away. But this is a, a time when he was still feeling very exuberant and very proud and very excited about his new job in Dusseldorf. Uh, and he was really pleased to be settling in the Rhine Valley along the beautiful Rhine River. Uh, and he talks about the Rhine in a letter about the mighty, majestic, old Rhine running as it has for centuries. And I think you can hear some of this grandeur and pride in the beauty of the Rhine River in this great symphony. The symphony is in a very bright, brilliant key, the key of E-flat. It is, interestingly, not in the usual four movements, but in five movements. The opening is a fabulous kind of evocation of, of the, the grandeur and beauty of the Rhine River, I think. Unbelievable music. Bum, 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 ba-da-da, la-la-da-dum. Uh, incredible power in that music. The second movement is an even more kind of visual a display or depiction of the mighty Rhine, and you'll hear you'll hear the, the rolling of the waves kind of along the river, if in fact the river has waves. I hope it has at least swells, if not waves. Uh, and that's a great scherzo. It's sort of a slow scherzo, but very charming. So the scherzo, instead of being in the third movement position, is in the second movement position. 
And then the third movement is a very delicate and beautiful miniature. Uh, it is a slow movement, but it's like one of those little epigrammatic piano compositions, solo piano compositions that Schumann loved to write. If you've ever played or listened to the scenes from childhood or pieces like that, these wonderful little uh, vignette kind of pieces. Th- this movement lasts probably barely four minutes, and I, I take it at a much more moving tempo than some of my colleagues because that seems to be what uh, Schumann's metronome mark indicates. But it's just a delicate, gentle, heartfelt, little miniature utterance. But now for the fourth movement, when we would expect the finale to happen, uh, we get quite a surprise because uh, Schumann decided to add a special, very dramatic slow movement, uh, a slow movement that uh, he marks solemnly. It is essentially a depiction of the coronation of, I think, the bishop or the cardinal that he had witnessed at the great cathedral there. So it, it uh, even though there have been no trombones featured in the symphony thus far, here in the fourth movement in this beautiful slow, very baroque, it sounds like a, a, Bach, a Bach fugue slowed down with great contrapuntal lines slowly running through it and an unbelievable sort of uh, primeval power to it. In this, he finally introduces the trombones to give this wonderful church, this, this sacred sensibility. And we hear this mighty, beautiful, slow movement, not, not a terribly long movement, but an incredibly compact and beautiful movement that obviously demonstrates Schumann's great love for and debt to uh, the great Johann Sebastian Bach. And that leads us to a very joyful and lively finale, which brings the work to a, a gorgeous close. Here it is to complete our concert, Robert Schumann's Symphony No. 3 in E-flat major, The Rhenish. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, and they're conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.